The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In October 1997, Joe Chinkwe uprooted his entire life in Newcastle, Australia, to be with his girlfriend and new sing in Canberra. The move was a prelude to a twisted and elaborate plot to extinguish the life of a young man who had a bright and promising future. Join me now as we take a look into the case of a budding new romance turned upside down by the suicidal fantasies of a deeply troubled young woman. You'll learn how one woman's desire to be the star performer in her own romantic tragedy resulted in a lover's suicide pact that only she knew about. On June 11, 1971, Joe was born to Maria Nino Cinque in Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia. Named after his grandfather Giuseppe, and Joe for short, it was a name that carried on a small piece of the family's rich and deeply woven heritage. Originating from Italy, Joe's parents immigrated to Australia several years before he was born, and in 1975, Maria and Nino welcomed their second child, Joe's baby brother Anthony. With two boys close in age, the house was often buzzing with chaos. Toys left askew on the floor, and games of tag played throughout the family's old brick home. But Maria and Nino relished in the ruckus, enjoying their time with the boys, realizing they'd grow quickly. And before the family knew it, Joe and Anthony were young men, setting about putting their lives together and testing the waters of adulthood. Still, the Chinkways maintained a strong family bond, meeting at the table every night for dinner and sharing stories of their day. A gifted athlete, Joe played every sport he could while in school, including tennis and soccer. But he wasn't just gifted physically. Joe radiated confidence and a zest for life that would inspire anyone that met him. He was also a brilliant student. Forever the peacemaker, Joe would attempt to break up fights between friends and help others bury the hatchet whenever he could. People couldn't help but be drawn to Joe's winning personality. His successful combination of brains and brawn would have taken Joe just about anywhere he chose to go in life. In 1994, at 24 years old, Joe graduated from university and celebrated by spending two months trekking across Europe. When he returned, he found a job at a civil engineering firm in Newcastle, close to his family. Still living at home with his parents, Joe's mother was always amused at how restless he'd become if he didn't have enough to do. Despite an active lifestyle, Joe still managed to find time to hang out with his friends. One of their favorite places to meet up was a local pub called The Brewery, and that's where he met 22-year-old Anu Singh. Born in Punjab, India, on September 3, 1972, 
Anu's parents relocated their family to Newcastle when she was barely two. Both doctors, Anu's parents pushed their children to succeed in their studies. In 1995, Anu was fresh out of Australian National University with a bachelor's degree in economics and plans to return to study law. Anu was attractive, well-spoken, with an extensive education and ambitious plans for her future. It only seemed natural that she and Joe would hit it off as well as they did. But at the time the two met, Anu was involved in a long-term relationship with Simon Walsh. Inevitably, the more time Anu and Joe spent together, the less time she spent with her boyfriend, and the relationship eventually fizzled out. Throughout most of 1995, Joe and Anu periodically went out together, and by 1996 were dating exclusively. To everyone around them, the pair appeared to be a perfectly happy and loving couple. Joe was entranced by Anu's beauty and admired her future ambitions. They spent much of their free time together while Anu planned to continue her schooling and Joe spent his days furthering his career. Joe's family got the chance to meet Anu when they all gathered together for dinner one night at the Chingue's home. While Joe's parents believed Anu was well-spoken and intelligent, they couldn't help but also notice that something seemed a bit off with some of the topics she brought up in the conversation. Anu spoke extensively about the afterlife, questioning the Chingue's about their own personal beliefs. She also talked about her previous relationship in great detail. In fact, she described it as almost incestuous. To say that everyone was a little bit stunned is an understatement. Although Joe noticed Anu's odd comments, he chose not to say anything, continuing to eat his meal as if nothing had happened. To the Chinques, it seemed Anu was a woman who liked to shock people with her different ideas. Yet, for the most part, she seemed pretty harmless. To Joe's friends, the whole dynamic between the couple had gone from charming to confusing. Anu was confident and dominant, part of what Joe found so attractive about her. Yet, at the same time, her confidence and domineering nature was steadily pushing the equally gregarious Joe into the background. He was now becoming less sociable with his friends and family letting Anu take the lead in every conversation and gathering, something that struck those closest to Joe as deeply concerning. It also didn't help when the Chingues learned the pair had been keeping their relationship secret from Anu's parents. They wanted their daughter to prioritize her studies over boys, a wish she ignored. Maria and Nino were instructed by Joe that if the Sings ever called, to say he was a friend of Anu's brother. Joe's parents' fondness for Anu was soon replaced by a weariness of her eccentricity and secretive nature. They were concerned with how quiet and almost reserved their son had become whenever Anu was around. Despite their best efforts to make her feel like a part of the family, Anu's behavior was becoming increasingly strange, making it only more difficult for the Chinques to socialize with her. Anu almost never stopped talking, interrupting conversations Maria and Nino tried to have with her son. One time, when Nino attempted to speak privately with Joe, Anu came up behind him and hugged his neck, kissing Joe and pulling him away. It seemed to the Chinques that whenever anyone else tried to take up any of Joe's time, Anu would be there to snatch it right back, 
as if it all belonged to her. And it didn't only happen when she was present. Maria and Nino treasured their nightly dinners with their son, but once anew became a permanent fixture in Joe's life, their simple nightly tradition was often sabotaged by Anu. When her plans for schooling went through, Anu returned to Canberra, which was almost 200 miles from Newcastle. The close to five-hour drive meant the couple couldn't see each other as often. Instead, Anu would call Joe at his parents' house every night, sometimes before the family meal, sometimes during the meal, and sometimes after. No matter what, Joe always stopped eating and spoke to Anu without fail. Each night that happened, Maria grew more and more irritated, often taking the phone and demanding Anu let Joe eat with his family in peace. Because the lovebirds were making a dozen long-distance calls a day, the Cinque's phone bill had skyrocketed, not to mention the expense of Joe traveling to Canberra every Friday to visit Anu. But it wasn't only social visits that drew Joe the vast distance to be with Anu. According to Anu, she'd been suffering a number of health problems that crippled her from time to time, which prompted Joe to drop whatever he was doing and rush out to be with her. Maria was worried her son was stretching himself too thin, dividing his time between family, work, and Anu, trying to balance finances all while Anu was becoming increasingly more needy. Maria worried Joe would eventually exhaust himself, but he didn't see it that way and begged his mother not to make him choose between family and Anu. With Anu's physical ailments becoming more demanding, Joe felt he needed to be there for her. She claimed to be suffering from a muscular degenerative disorder, which was eating its way through her body and severely weakening her. With Joe making so many trips to Canberra, the distance was becoming too difficult to manage, and in September 1996, Joe finally decided to pack up his things and move in with Anu. Joe's parents were devastated. Maria couldn't help but feel frustrated with her son. How could he trade his whole life in Newcastle to be with a woman she felt was ill-suited for him? However, Joe had made up his mind. After moving in together, the couple took the next step in their commitment by opening a joint bank account. The brick-lined townhouse they shared was located in a bustling part of town not far from the university Anu was attending. At the end of a new semester, the couple spent three weeks with Joe's family back in Newcastle. Although Anu was on her best behavior, Maria still felt deep misgivings about her. She could never have imagined just how right her mother's intuition would be. Once the couple were back at their home in Canberra, things started taking a downward spiral. Anu had suddenly become obsessed with her weight and appearance, putting herself through harsh dieting regimes and vigorous bouts of exercise at the gym. Although Joe always reassured her she was beautiful just the way she was, Anu's need for constant affirmation was only escalating. Since late 1995, Anu had struggled with bulimia, a devastating eating disorder that affects the rational way a person views their body. Sufferers live in anxiety of gaining weight and often struggle for years to find a healthy balance between food and self-image. 
In the early days of a new battling the disorder, she often starved herself, consuming little outside of soft drinks and cookies. After pleading with her parents to get liposuction, she was encouraged to seek professional help instead. She never did. By the time Anu was living with Joe in 1996, her bulimia still hadn't been properly treated, and neither had the depression that came with it. By early 1997, Anu started complaining about other issues, including chronic fatigue and muscle aches. Her health had become her daily obsession. The Chinque's godson Robert had also become concerned about Joe after meeting up with him several times since he moved to Canberra. During his visits, Robert noticed the spark disappearing from Joe's eyes. He worried about Joe's health and quality of life living with Anu. On one visit, Robert was surprised to learn Joe had bought a new car for himself. Joe seemed really excited, showing off the new car to Robert and laughing for the first time in a while. To Robert, Joe acted like the happy-go-lucky man he'd known most of his life. In sharp contrast to Anu, who was only slipping further downhill as time went on. By mid-1997, Anu was convinced she'd contracted AIDS, making her even more maniacally focused on her health. And it didn't matter what doctors told her, Anu was certain her body was shutting down. By that point, she'd also become livid with Joe, Feeling angry, he seemed unaffected by her ailments. When her HIV results came back negative, Anu's focus shifted on various nerve conditions, further escalating her mania. On one occasion, her parents tried to have her admitted for psychiatric evaluation, but Anu wasn't considered a danger to herself or others and couldn't be admitted against her will. The entire time, Joe stood by Anu's side, as her paranoia continued to escalate. Anu now grew angry with Joe for another reason. She blamed him for her most recent health problems after he apparently suggested she try a drug called Ipecac to help her with her weight loss. Joe was finally beginning to feel as though he'd had enough and secretly began figuring out the best possible way to get out of his relationship with Anu. The purchase of his car had just been the first step in his exit plan. Some speculate now that Anu had suspected it. Her preoccupation with her health and the belief she was actively dying had taken over her life. That's when Anu began asking classmates and friends if anyone could help her buy a gun. She claimed she was ready to die, but no one took her seriously. Despite multiple attempts, Anu failed to purchase a weapon. Instead, she managed to get her hands on some heroin. Anu confided in friends that she and Joe were going to go through with a suicide pact. They were planning to die together. On October 20th, 1997, Anu's friends sent out invites to several of their other university friends for a dinner party. Everyone who showed up was fully aware of Anu's fragile mental state and her admission that she and Joe were going to die that night. The dinner guests believed they were there for a farewell party. Anu made it clear that Joe was in on the pact, and throughout the night, the couple appeared very loving towards each other. To everyone in attendance, it hardly appeared to be a party to say goodbye. 
They wouldn't find out until later why they hadn't followed through with their pact. Instead, a few days later, the same guests were surprised to receive yet another invitation for Friday, October 24th. Despite the awkward and unsettling knowledge of the couple's plans, everyone interacted, and the couple once again behaved normal. Two days later on the 26th, Joe's mother Maria was antsy. Joe had always made it a habit to call them every Sunday to check in, but not this Sunday. When Joe still hadn't called, Maria finally phoned Joe herself, only to be met with an unfamiliar voice on the other end. It was a police officer. Maria suddenly felt her blood run cold. At the same time, there was an officer standing on their front porch, knocking on their door. That's when they were delicately informed that they were there about Joe. Immediately, Maria began to scream, begging the officers not to tell them anything more. Deep in the darkest part of Maria's heart, she knew Joe was gone. The following day, Joe's family and friends traveled to the morgue together to identify Joe's body. Robert could hardly believe it. Not a month ago, he'd seen Joe in Canberra, smiling and happy like he used to be. How could this have happened? Police explained to Joe's family that foul play was suspected and Anu had been taken into custody as their prime suspect. Toxicology reports later came back from Joe's autopsy, showing high levels of rohypnol and heroin in his system. Rohypnol is a powerful tranquilizer, which is ten times more potent than Valium, sold in some countries as a sleeping pill. However, it's developed a dark reputation for its use in sexual assault cases, where it's been slipped to unsuspecting victims, effectively paralyzing them. For that reason, it's been banned in some countries. On October 26th, around noon, a new called for an ambulance, but gave the dispatcher the wrong directions, delaying their arrival by close to half an hour. By the time the paramedics finally did arrive, a new reportedly had to be pried off of Joe's body while she was screaming and crying hysterically. Anu told police she'd injected Joe with heroin, apparently to prevent him from interfering with her suicide attempt. Anu was immediately held on suspicion. Through tracking down the friends who attended the two dinner parties the previous week, the disturbing story came to light. Ross Manley, a fellow law student and party guest, told police Anu had been asking around wanting to buy some heroin and managed to get some from a friend of his on the morning of the 26th. To their horror, investigators soon learned that everyone who sat at that table those two evenings were fully aware of the suicide pact Anu had planned, except for Joe. It didn't take long before Anu's classmate and good friend, Madavi Rao, was also brought in for questioning. Through interrogating both Madavi and Anu, Detectives soon learned Joe's murder had been in the works for months. After making several trips to the National Library, Anu learned how to administer injections and studied suicide methods extensively. When Anu failed to purchase a gun, that's when she ultimately decided on heroin. After obtaining the heroin, Anu then came to rely on her friend Madavi for the rehypnol. 
Madavi had connections with the source, and following both dinner parties, Anu laced Joe's coffee with the potent drug. However, the first attempt to inject Joe with heroin failed because it had congealed inside the syringe. But on the second evening, Anu managed to inject a fatal dose of heroin into Joe's bloodstream while he lay paralyzed from the powerful tranquilizer. Most disturbing of all, Anu sat and watched as Joe suffered in pain for nearly 36 hours before calling paramedics. It was only when his lips started turning blue and he began vomiting blood that Anu finally called an acquaintance, telling her there'd been an overdose. Anu had spent the weekend making dozens of calls to various friends and colleagues while Joe lay bundled in bed in absolute agony. Her final call was to a woman named Bronwyn, the person who had supplied Madavi with Rohypnol. Only upon Bronwyn's urging did Anu finally call for an ambulance. The call showed Anu was incredibly distressed and unhelpful. Not only did she give the wrong address, at one point she referred to herself as Olivia. Every precious second that could have been used to save Joe's life was eaten up with the wild goose chase she put the paramedics on, and Joe passed away from cardiac arrest. The first officer to arrive on the scene was Sergeant Raymond Fitzpatrick. Upon entering the couple's home, he described Anu as both hysterical and disturbingly friendly at the same time. During her moments of hysteria, it took three men to restrain her from Joe's body crying one minute and smiling happily the next. At the police station, Anu was restless, anxious, and frantically asking what had happened to Joe. When police asked Anu why she hadn't followed through with the suicide pact, she didn't answer. What police found most unsettling was how many witnesses were aware of the plan, all classmates of Anu's. Not once, but twice. Not one of them intervened or attempted to stop Anu. Each guest had been formally invited by Madavi, and all of them were aware of what was supposed to happen once they left. Everyone at the dinner party were highly intelligent young law students, well aware of how morally repugnant and downright illegal Anu's actions were. Yet no one said a word through the whole affair. Anu appeared in court on October 28, 1997, charged with Joe Chinque's murder. At the same time, Madavi was also charged as an accessory to murder, facing similar charges of manslaughter and first-degree murder. Originally, both women were slated to be tried together. However, complications regarding the evidence forced their trials to become separate and Madavi was eventually found not guilty on all charges. Despite purchasing the Rohypnol and gathering a news coveted audience, and on December 10th, 1999, Madavi was released. Since then, she's adopted a new name and left Australia to live overseas. For a new Singh, the situation wasn't as cut and dry. On April 23rd, 1999, her defense argued diminished responsibility by reason of mental illness. Helen Garner, a journalist researching the case, described Anu as unsettlingly friendly 
and calm throughout the whole trial. Anu blamed Joe for her addiction to Ipecac, claiming he was the one who had given her the idea to take it. The Chinque's godson Robert found the accusation ludicrous. Joe had never dabbled in drugs his entire life. Robert also found it doubtful Joe even knew what Ipecac was. Anu's defense cited her slew of untreated mental illnesses as an effective reason for her actions and that she'd reacted purely on the impulses of borderline insanity. According to her defense team, her severe depression had limited her responsibility. One forensic psychiatrist assigned to assess Anu made a statement to the court that offered a potential motive for Joe's murder, and that was that Anu wholeheartedly believed Joe had suggested she take a drug that was now causing her to die from a strange degenerative disorder. Despite expert witnesses claiming Anu's rational level of control and assertion in planning such a complex crime, Judge Crispin found Anu guilty of manslaughter by diminished responsibility. He believed Anu's depression and borderline personality disorder had clouded her judgment, and Anu was sentenced to 10 years in prison with a non-parole period of four years. Maria and Nina were outraged and devastated at the verdict, screaming their hatred and utter despair toward Anu. Including the time she'd already spent behind bars, Anu Singh served a grand total of 18 months in prison and was released on parole in 2001. For Joe's loved ones, Judge Crispin's ruling and sentencing for Anu seemed unjust. We asked clinical psychologist Dr. Christina Forzani to explain some of Anu's diagnoses in order to better understand how they could have diminished her responsibility in Joe's murder. One of Anu's primary diagnoses was that she had a borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder is characterized by frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, a pattern of intense and unstable interpersonal relationships unstable self-image, impulsivity leading to self-damage, like overspending substance abuse or sex, recurrent suicidal threats or gestures, intense moods and mood instability, chronic feelings of emptiness, inappropriate intense anger, and self-related paranoid ideation or dissociative symptoms. So that could be where some of those psychotic symptoms that Anu had can also be perceived as hypochondriasis come in, which is a preoccupation with having a serious disease which persists despite medical evaluations not finding the disease. The belief that this perception is not based on delusions, that preoccupation then causes distress or functional impairment in the person's life for at least six months. In order to diagnose hypochondriasis, the preoccupation can't be accounted for by another mental health disorder, though, or drug use. First of all, I'm not sure which drugs Anu was even using. There's a lot of mention that she was using drugs in college before she even met Joe Cinque, which makes it difficult to determine her diagnosis and the cause of her symptoms. It's very difficult to diagnose and treat mental health disorders when there are drugs involved because many symptoms are caused just by the drug use itself. And that's why it's difficult to determine if that was Anu Singh's primary diagnosis or was it depression or was it personality disorder. But court reports do describe Anu believing that she was so overweight that she begged her father for money for liposuction. 
And then also that she believes she had things crawling under her skin, which to me sounds more like the drug use side effects, believed her head was not attached to her body, believed she had AIDS, multiple sclerosis, peripheral neuropathies, and degenerative muscle conditions. But she was never overweight and was never found to have any of these medical conditions. The belief that she was sick when she wasn't could be seen as hypochondriasis, but it could also be from the paranoia, from whatever substances she was using, as well as from borderline personality disorder. There are also reports that Anu had traits of two other personality disorders, dependent and narcissistic. It's pretty common knowledge these days that narcissism involves a person having a grandiose sense of self, requiring excessive admiration, exploiting others, lacking empathy, and being envious of others or even believing that others are envious of them. And then those with dependency have difficulty making decisions for themselves, need others to take on responsibilities in their lives, fear loss of support or approval from others, have difficulty initiating projects by themselves, and go to excessive lengths to feel nurtured by others. They urgently seek out relationships and are preoccupied with fears of being left alone. It's hard to say which of these Anu actually met criteria for, but many of these traits are demonstrated by the insecurities and behaviors described by those who knew Anu Singh. Her friends described her as socially gifted and ambitious, and then also shallow, self-obsessed, and desperate for male approval. And there are reports that she kept diaries in high school documenting her relationships with men. So you can kind of see how if she had traits of these kind of almost conflicting personality disorders, the dependency with also grandiosity and then the real or imagined abandonment of the borderline, that it would have been very confusing for her to determine a, an internal sense of who she was. Borderline personality disorder in combination with the drugs she was using and her perception that she was having these health problems and belief that they were in part Joe Chinque's fault could have made it difficult for Anu Singh to determine right from wrong. So here we have a very insecure and anxious woman without a strong sense of self who is emotionally dependent on a man and then believes that he pushed Ipecac on her. In fact, I think he, he even bought the bottle for her and then believed that he was intending to poison her with it. And so we have her, all of these insecurities mixed with the anger and the inability to have remorse. In 2004, Anu returned briefly to prison after violating her parole, but was released again later that same year. By the time of her release, Anu already had a new boyfriend who she met while they were both on trial for different crimes back in 1999. After being released, the pair moved to Sydney together. Anu had managed to complete her PhD in prison and had made up her mind to become a criminologist. At one point, Anu attempted to make a documentary about prison and approached the founder of a victim support group called Enough is Enough. The founder's response to Anu was that if she was genuinely there to help people, great, but if she was just interested in making a film, he didn't want any part of it. He never heard from Anu again. Decades later, Anu and her boyfriend are annoyed by public mistrust and outrage, making things difficult for Anu to find meaningful employment in her chosen career. Her boyfriend was quoted by a local paper saying, She wasn't an angel, but it served her time. 
For Maria and Nino, the pain and heartbreak of losing Joe has never left the formerly bright and happy home. Despite Anu asking for the Chinque's forgiveness, Maria and Nino have said they will never forgive her for taking their son's life. In their opinion, Anu's sentence was a joke, a slap in the face, and she effectively got away with murder. In the Chinque's minds, Joe was not only betrayed by Anu, he'd been betrayed by the entire justice system. A 26-year-old man, in the prime of his life, was ripped away from his family and the bright future that was in store for him. I'd like to give a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters, Caitlin L., Anna C., Aaron M., Kiana W., Kate M., Shelly N., Casey L., Julie E., and Eric C. Thanks again for your support. It really helps the show keep going. And a special thanks to Dr. Christina Forzani for sharing her insights in this episode. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E